Good morning. I believe the kids and youth are now dismissed. Um, kids usually go out this way and youth are in the back. Uh, we're jumping back into the story of Jonah this morning. As we've studied Jonah, we said this is really the story of God's love and mercy. Uh, what's interesting is the book of Jonah begins with um, a, a story maybe that, that is not as familiar, but it's like God has a call and he has a command. He sends Jonah from his people to go out into Nineveh. And, and, and it's marked actually by Jonah, the prophet of God, disobeying. Uh, then you get to chapter 2 where you find salvation comes from the Lord, but it is in a way that Jonah never could have imagined as this fish comes and swallows him up. And, and yet from the depths for the inside of the fish, Jonah finally cries out from the depths of his heart. And now we have a God who's not only all-powerful and over everything and over all creation, the land and the sea, but we have a God who hears our prayers. Yet when we get to chapter 3, uh, another shift in the story happens. Because here now in chapter 3, we see revival comes to Nineveh. In this chapter, you'll still see a God who's making a call and a command. You'll still see salvation and mercy. But yet, what's going to change in this chapter is that instead of it being marked by Jonah's disobedience, we'll see the power of Jonah's obedience and how that obedience is found in repentance and that repentance is seen in his duty and in the ministry. You know, when I was a kid, I grew up in Sunday school. One of the songs we used to sing, the chorus went O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E, right? Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. But what's fascinating is that in Jonah chapter 3, we don't just find obedience is the best way to show that we believe. We see how obedience leads to repentance and how both of them show and reveal God's love and mercy. And of course, the story of Jonah is, is, is upside down, right? It's a, it's a story that many have called a parable, meaning that you have this earthly story with so much heavenly meaning. But it's another story that some writers have looked at and seen it as satire because nothing makes sense. The prophet of God is the one who's disobedient. The hated Assyrians who are hated enemies of Israel who are, are, are obsessed with making Assyria great again, right? Of building their own empire. They're the ones who actually come and follow God. The Gentiles, the outsiders, are the ones who are invited back home. And what's interesting is that the story of Jonah has this backdrop where God's love and mercy is available to all. And that's what you see in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and even in chapter 4, is that God's love and mercy is available for all. And so that's what we're talking about here in Jonah chapter 3. What does revival look like in Nineveh? Yes. But how does God's transformation of Jonah, shown in Jonah's obedience, transform Jonah's world? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. I'll be reading the entire chapter starting at verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the, kings and, by the, decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered up with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for the blessing of you being the God of redemption of you being the God of mercy, the God of love, the God of compassion. Lord, we pray this morning that you redeem us in your shalom, that you redeem us so that we are right with you, that you redeem us so that we are right with creation, that you redeem us so that we are right with one another, that you redeem us so that we are right with even ourselves. We thank you for this story of Jonah, the reminder how you are not just the God of personal transformation, but you want to take our stories and use them to impact our world. That God, our obedience to what you've pulled in front of us, our obedience to what you've called us to, has the power and the ability to impact our world as a whole. So Lord, help us to be obedient, for it not only reveals the very best way to show that we believe, it reveals your love your grace, your power, your transformation, your mercy, your compassion, your truth, your goodness. Lord, help us to be obedient to you as you're so faithful to us. In your holy and precious name, amen. 
So in Jonah chapter 3, the scene again that we've got is that Jonah has finally gone to Nineveh. And what's fascinating is that as Jonah reaches Nineveh, it's easy for us to forget that he has flown. He has fle- fled, fl- flown? He has fled from, from the message that God has called them to. And I think that's important for you to realize that as Jonah enters into Nineveh, right, God hasn't forgotten that Jonah fled, right? As Jonah enters into Nineveh, God has heard the prayers of Jonah in the belly of the fish. But what I love about this story is that obedience then becomes a central thing for us to hold on to. Because when Jonah reaches Nineveh, Jonah's redemption has come. Again, the biblical concept of of redemption is is, is shuv, right? And and shuv is important. I I think being in Harrisburg, I've explained this time again, but, but one of the things that's helpful for me when I think about shuv is not just saying, hey, God, I'm sorry. Hey, God, I fell short. Hey, God, I sinned against you. Hey, God, I harmed others by what I did. Hey, God, I left good left undone. God doesn't think your confession is enough. The concept of Shuv is actually turning around. So, like, for example, we're in Harrisburg, in the middle, generally speaking, uh, of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, right? The idea of Shuv isn't just saying, hey, I need to get to Pittsburgh, and I'm driving, the car says, welcome to Philadelphia. Because if I'm in Philadelphia, and I say, oh, man, I'm so sorry I'm in Philadelphia, I'm still not in Pittsburgh where I'm supposed to be. That's not shuv. That's not redemption. Saying you're sorry is not enough because you're still in Philadelphia. And for me, I grew up in Philadelphia, so it's comfortable, right? It's where I'm known. It's where I know. It's not how I get around. It's how I can basically just be myself and be okay there. But that is not shuv. That is not redemption. Saying you're sorry is a step, but it's not the only step. Because you're still in Philadelphia. What you have to do, you have to turn the car around. Get back on the road and get to Pittsburgh. Turning the car around. Not just saying, I'm sorry for being in Philadelphia. I'm sorry for falling short. I'm sorry for going the wrong way. But turning the car around and actually driving to where you're supposed to be. That's a sign of shuv. That's what it means to be redeemed. So Jonah's shuv has come because now, remember in the beginning, he went as far away from Nineveh as possible. Down to Joppa, down to Tarshish, as far away as possible. But now he's where God wants him to be. So we know his redemption has happened. At least the redemption in God's eyes has happened. But it's also important for us to hold on to that Nineveh's shuv had not yet come. That Nineveh was still in the same place. They were still the mighty Assyrians. They were still defined by lust for power. They were still defined by violence. They were still defined by by making their empire great. Assyria at the time was this ascending world power that wasn't just an enemy of Israel, but they were a threat to Israel. Nineveh was still there. And it's important to us because as we say, it's not just about our personal redemption. It's about the world. It's important to remember that if Jonah only worried about his own Redemption, his own shuv, his own turn, and not about how God wanted to work through him, Nineveh would still be dead in its sins. His world would still be the same. They will still be looking out for their own and building their own empires instead of God's kingdom. And that's another reminder to us of how God has transformed us, not only for us, but for our world. So when he gets to Nineveh, they are still in the same place, apart from God away from God, living in darkness, living for themselves, living in sin, doomed to destruction. Yet Jonah shows up in faithfulness to God. And so not only has Jonah's redemption come, Nineveh's redemption hasn't come, but another thing we need to remember is that God, Yahweh, is still the same. And the passage begins, and in in, in Jonah 3, in the Hebrew, there's two names of God that are used, and they're both significant, both very significant. In the very first two verses, you see God is Yahweh because he's still the same. So Jonah is still coming to these people, reminding them that there's the God who's the God of the land of the sea, is the God who's the God of everything, is the God of eternity past, the God of the future, the God of the present who's with them now. This all-powerful God is the one who's given him the word, and the word is still the same. And what's interesting is that Jonah is sent forth with this God who's still the same. And you're saying, why we keep saying that? Because God has always desired salvation for Nineveh. God has always desired his people to be a light for all the nations. God has always desired for you to be transformed so that through you the world can be transformed. God has not changed. Jonah has turned around and changed. Nineveh has yet to change. God remains the same. 
And how is God the same? Is that his love and his mercy is available to all if we are faithful. And so what's interesting is that for a lot of us, perhaps it's easy for us to say, like, God's love and mercy is available for all. Right? Like, there's not too many people who would argue that, that this God we love, this God we serve, that his mercy, his compassion, his grace is available to all. But the challenge of Jonah chapter 3 is leaving that blanket statement of saying God's mercy and love is available to all. The challenge of Jonah 3 is saying, is God's love and mercy available through me? And that's the hard part. Because any one of us can say God's love is available for all. But as you look at your life, as you look at your everyday scenes, as you look at what you're working on, what you're building, how you're living, how you're breathing, how you're going through your everyday life, is God's love and mercy available through you? Is God's love and mercy seen through you? Is God's love and mercy available through all through you? Because that's the challenge is that our God transforms us so that we can transform our world through the power of the Holy Spirit. That our God doesn't just save you, for God so loved the world that you are saved. Not so heaven can come down and you can, hey, listen, heaven's going to be a wonderful place. I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to hang out with Jesus and a a lot of you, and it's going to be a grand old time. But as long as we're on this side of heaven, your salvation is not simply about you. Your salvation is for the world. God wants to transform you and to take your life, your story, your experiences, your gifts, your skills, your abilities, your transformation to show them that he's alive, that he's moving, that he's working, that he's coming for them too. So that's what's going on here in Jonah chapter 3. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is God's love and mercy available to all through me? Jonah obeys in chapter 3. The passage begins with Yahweh, the God of all things, calling Jonah, commanding Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh. And it says, preach my message. And what's interesting about this is that nothing changes in the message. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. What was the message in chapter 1? I've seen your sin. I've seen your wickedness. I'm against you and how you're sinning against me. I think that's interesting to me because a lot of us are scared to witness to our neighbors, to our family, and our friends. But aren't you glad God doesn't just tell you to go out there and be like, I see you, you're a sinner. I see you, you're wicked. I see you, you're dishonoring to God. I see you, you're going to hell. Now, a lot of us thought that's the way to evangelize, right? Fire and brimstone. And Jonah's kind of in that camp too, right? You'll see later when we get to his speech or his sermon. But what I love is that God just calls Jonah to be faithful to what God had revealed to him. And in light, God does the same thing to us. Because remember, before Jesus goes to heaven to make it perfect for you and me, he says what? I want you to go where? To the nations. And do what? Make disciples. And how do you do that? You teach them everything I have taught you. God doesn't task any of us with being the greatest theologian ever. God doesn't task any of us with even being the best Christian ever. It doesn't mean you shouldn't aspire to it. It just means that's not what God is holding you responsible for. But what God does hold you responsible for is everything I've revealed to you, I need you to be teaching to others. Everything I've shown to you, I need you to be showing to others. And that's what it means to be a disciple, not only to hear the word of God, but to do the word of God, to live the word of God, to share the word of God, to share what God has done in you so that through you, your world can be transformed too. So Jonah goes with a heavy message to preach against Nineveh, to preach against its wanting to be grand, to preach against its violence, to preach against its sin, to preach against its darkness. And what's interesting here is that as Jonah obeys, he not only hears the word of the Lord, but he does it. He not only answers the Lord, but he follows him. And I think there's another new thing we need to add on to this redemption thing. Because it's not just, hey, I'm in my car in Harrisburg, and I need to get to Pittsburgh, but now I'm in Philadelphia, so let's turn the car around. But it's something that we learn, because as Jonah accepts the assignment, we know that his redemption is complete, at least in God's eyes. 
We'll get to chapter 4 because Jonah still has some stuff to work on. But in God's eyes, the transformation is complete. Why? Not just because Jonah cried out. Not just because Jonah says, Lord, I need you and salvation comes from you. Not just because Jonah turns the car around, well, the ship or the fish. Not just because Jonah turns around and lands in Nineveh, but because he's actually doing the work. I think that's an important lesson for us. Because a lot of us understand our personal transformation and God's salvation of us as something for us. It's good when you ask God to forgive your sins. It's good to stop walking the wrong way and making bad choices and running away from God. It's good to turn the car around. It's good to be in Pittsburgh, if you will. But it's even better and a sign of your transformation when you accept the assignment. God didn't just save you for you. So when you look at your life, is your redemption defined by Jesus dying on the cross for your sins? Is your redemption defined by what God has done for you? Or is your redemption defined by you saying, God, I accept the assignment. God, on this side of heaven, I want to take what you've done in me and what you've done all around me, and I want you to work through me to impact the world all around me. Because that's redemption. That's part of God's plan for the world. And it's this beautiful mystery that if you're faithful to God and faithful to what he calls you to do, you can impact the world. And it starts with your world. So it's a sign that Jonah has been redeemed, that he's called back to work, and he goes to work. But it's also a sign that we shall no longer be defined by our sin. We shall no longer be defined by our failures. We shall be no longer be defined by our afflictions, by our addictions, by how we fall short, by the good left undone. Because that is something that paralyzes us. When we look at God and says, God, I know you're merciful, but I'm just not good enough. God, I know you forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. God, I know you've turned me around, but I'm very comfortable here in Philadelphia. God, I know you've called me to go to Pittsburgh, but Harrisburg will do. It's halfway there, ain't it? There's so many of us who understand the redemption of God as simply what God's done for us. But now through the story of Jonah, may we be enlightened and get to a point where we realize this part of your redemption is what God wants to do through you. And the fact that Jonah can disobey God, can flee from God, can run from God, that he would rather die than God save these hated Gentiles, that he can go all the way down to the depths of the ocean in the belly of a fish, that he can be vomited onto the shore, and that he can still say, okay, God, finally, I get it, right? I'm here now. If that is not a sign that God does not define you by you falling short, I think when we say, God, use all of me, We must realize that God doesn't just want to use the good things, the triumphs, the gifts, the skills, the abilities. When we say God wants to use all of me, God wants to use our brokenness too. God wants to use our failures too. God wants to use us falling short too. Because your world might be inspired by your gifts, but it might be touched by your brokenness. Your world might be inspired by your abilities, but they can be touched by realizing, oh my goodness, you've made it, you've survived. Tell me about this God who got you through. And that's what happens here. So Jonah coming back shows his redemption is complete because God calls him back to work, calls him back to ministry, calls him back to duty, and that God's grace covers sin, that God wants to use him. So instead of us putting barriers on why we're not living for God or why we're not serving God or all the things we need to be doing before we can serve God, God simply says, I want all of you. And what's fascinating is we live in a culture that we are basically like the grandchildren of the Enlightenment. And all that means is that we've gotten more self-centered. We've gotten to a place where we're so humanist that we have become the center of our universes. And when we become the center of our universes, we become our own lords. And pity on us if we're the lords of our own souls. Pity on us if we're the only God that we want to follow. And pity on us if what I want matters more than what God wants. Because when we come back to the story of Jonah, we must recognize that if God is truly the center of our universe, it's not just our triumphs that matter, but God can work even in our failure too. 
And I think that's a grace that God affords Jonah, but it's also a grace that God affords us. So while all this wonderful things is happening in Jonah, I love what God is still doing in the world. So when Jonah shows up for revival in Nineveh, it's important for us to be reminded that Nineveh is still Nineveh. The city is still big and large and sprawling. You know, some people think it was 60 miles all around, and they don't know if it's like the whole city was 60 miles or, or suburbs. Like when I was a kid, if you lived an hour and a half from Philadelphia, you lived an hour and a half from Philadelphia, right? Now you live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I don't know how that happened. It's like the city just keeps expanding, right? Soon Harrisburg's about to be a suburb of Philadelphia too. Give another 20 years, right? So I don't know if that's what Nineveh was. But we do think it was wide enough that if you were walking at a pace for 20 miles a day, it would take three days. And in this city, it's still the capital of the Assyrian Empire. If you study Assyria, you know that these were not only bloodthirsty, that they were obsessed with making their country great, that they were obsessed with violence, they were obsessed with murder, they were obsessed with power, kind of like our America. You don't have to use your own imagination, right? It's kind of like our America, right? They were obsessed with taking other people's land and calling it their own, right? They were obsessed with enslaving people. They're obsessed with murder and killing and war. Again, you don't have to use your imagination. Just study our history. But Nineveh is still Nineveh when Jonah shows up. And I actually think that's a grace. I think that's a grace. Because when God sends us into our world, we might be scared and intimidated. But God knows what he's sending us into. And God knows his plans for the people that we think are so far away from him. And God knows that our world is our world, but God also knows that through you, he can transform our world, amen? And so that's how he sends Jonah. And when Jonah gets there, it's important that he, Nineveh is still Nineveh because it means that the people are still lost. It means the people are still living for themselves. It means the people are still dead in their sins. And that's why it's important for us to understand our own redemption and transformation as not only what God does in me, but what God does through me. Because we too live in a world of Nineveh's and Assyria's. We too live with people who are still lost. We too live and walk with people who are living for themselves. We too live in a world where people are dead in sin. And God knows it. The difference is that God has now transformed you, healed you, redeemed you, saved you, so that you can go to that world too. So that you can start with your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your schoolmates, that you can start being faithful to God and letting him transform. Now what's interesting is that in the Hebrew, Jonah's entire sermon is five words. And there's a lot of people who nitpick this here and there because they're just like, I don't really think Jonah's heart was really in it. If the city's supposed to take three days to walk through, the guy got through on day one and then he was done. And I just like to call that early retirement. You know, Jonah was so effective after day one. He's like, God, you got the rest. I'm good. Right. We got to have him. We'll ask him. He'll tell us the truth. Right. But what's interesting is I think we can nitpick on him maybe not completing the assignment, completing the job. We can nitpick how in the Hebrew it's only five words. And those weren't even five words. Like those five words didn't tell who God is. It didn't tell what God done for them. It didn't even tell how, how they were to be redeemed. You know what those five words in the Hebrew get translated as in English? Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And I think that the, the interesting thing for me isn't that it was five words in Hebrew. It wasn't figuring out if, like, he did a whole crusade and a sermon series and this was the T-shirt they got out of it, right? Like, this was a bumper phrase. I think what's most important is for us to remember that even the littlest we can muster up, God can use to redeem. That you don't have to have the perfect phrase that you don't have to have the perfect answer, that you don't have to knock it out of the park. There's so many times we're like, God, I messed up. That was a ministry opportunity. I just, I just didn't do it. Or God, I can do it better. Or, or God, I just didn't have the right words. Let Jonah's five-word sermon that changed the nation remind you that if you're faithful, whatever you offer up, that can be enough for God to use. That God can be enough for God to use. 40 days, and Nineveh would be overthrown. And what's interesting about Nineveh's redemption is that 40 days is very, very, it's, it's a little bit more than a month. And I, I think about this, and I thought about this idea where, like, all of us in this room, and if you didn't know, it's going to be a shock to you, so welcome, right? But all of us in this room should know 
that this very breath that we're taking can be our last. At any given point, you can be on your last breath. And any very day, you could be living your last day. Right? We all know that. But we don't live like that. We don't. And I think what's interesting about the 40 days is if anybody comes to us, if it was Jesus himself, or maybe our medical doctor, right? If it's Jesus, uh, Jesus is higher than the doctor. We'll go with Jesus, right? If Jesus comes to you and says, listen, you have 40 more days to live, think about how your life would be transformed. Think about all the things that are priority now, that'll fall to the floor. Think about all the things that are so important and cramming you down and you're so struggling. to. Think about how you would willingly, right, toss them all out the window if you only had those 40 days. But I think when Jonah comes to Nineveh, he's not saying you have 40 days to transform. He's saying, you sinners, you violent people, you selfish people, 40 more days and my God's coming for you. But even still, that was enough to transform a nation and a people. It wasn't the best sermon. It wasn't the nicest sermon. If this book is about God's love and mercy, Jonah was not preaching God's love and mercy. Jonah was preaching, y'all need to buckle up because 40 days, God's coming. And that was enough to transform people. And I say all that to say, whatever you've been through, Whatever God's done in you and through you, whatever word God puts on your tongue, that can be enough to transform the people around you. Your job is to be faithful, to listen to the Spirit, to submit to Jesus Christ, and to say, God, this is all I can offer right now, and let God use it to transform. And what a transformation it was. They hear this message, 40 more days, right? 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And they believe God. And they move from the, the all-powerful name of God, Yahweh, to a more personal Elohim. They move from the God who's above all things to the great God who's now our God. And Jonah says, 40 more days you'll be overthrown. And this is their shoe. This is their turn. They didn't just say, God, I'm sorry I've sinned against you, right? Look at what they did. They believed God. They gave him the title of Elohim, the supreme God. They proclaim a fast. And they do something we would all do well to do. They grieve their sin. There's so much times that we fall short, that we sin, that we're not living as we should be living, that we do things that hurt God and hurt others, that we don't live according to how God's called us to live. We're not shining our light. And yes, we may say, God, forgive us. But we're still sitting in Philadelphia when we should be in Pittsburgh. We're still sitting in the comfort of our sins when we should be turning the car around. We're still maybe in Harrisburg and comfortable still when we should be in Pittsburgh accepting the assignment. They grieved their sin. When they said, I sinned against God and I don't know you, they put on the sackcloth, they put on the dust, and they grieved before God to say, I have messed up. I have fallen short. We would do well to not just ask for forgiveness, but to actually grieve our sin. To actually grieve our sin. And what's interesting is that Jonah may not have done the whole assignment. He might have only done day one, right? Jonah might not have preached all 60 miles. He might have only done 20 days. Jonah might have only repeated the same five words over and over. Jonah might even have the intent to like, y'all going down. God's coming. Everyone's wiped out. 40 days. Good luck, right? But even still, God sends them to the streets, to the people, to the everyday people. And I love that that was enough to transform a nation because the people heard it and then they believed it and then they turned and little by little, the word spread to the king. And I think that's fascinating because a lot of times we, in our culture, we say, who's in charge here, right? Who's the most important person if we win that person over? And what's interesting is a lot of ministry still does this, right? It's like, find the person of promise, right? Find the person of influence, right? Find the person in charge. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that sometimes God sends you to the regular people too. And when God sends you to regular people, sometimes the miracle is even greater because it's not about the charisma of that person in charge. It's about the truth and repentance of the people on the ground. And that's what happens, and it gets to the king. And something that we miss in our culture happens here. When the king hears the word of the Lord, that 40 days will be destroyed, he steps up off of his throne, which was a form of identity, right? A sort of status, a culture. And what does he do? He takes off his robe. 
That's not very significant to us, but in that culture, your robe signified your power, your influence, right? Your royalty, your royal line. It signified how important you were. And I think it's interesting in our day and age where we become so humanist, and that's just my word for self-centered, where we put ourselves in the center of the universe, what does our world tell us? Your identity, who you see yourself as, is the most important. But yet from Genesis to Revelation, the people of God have to what? Take off their robes. Take off the identity of self that makes it so important and say, it's not about me. It's about me being part of Christ's body. Say, it's not about how I identify, but how God sees me. It's not just about who I am, but who God says I am. And if the king of Nineveh, the hated rival of Israel, this bloodthirsty, angry, vicious, violent man is able to say, I'm going to take that off and grieve my sin, how much more should we be willing to do the same? We all have different markers of identity. And all I'm saying is no marker of identity should matter more than the marker of belonging to Jesus Christ. No marker of identity should matter more than being a member of this body of Christ, than being a member of Christ's church, than being a child of God. So he takes off, right? And he gathers all the nobles around, and he says, listen, all of you have to fast. All of you have to grieve this sin. All of you have to call on God and please do it urgently. All of us have to turn the car around. We have to turn from our sin, from our evil, from our violence. And then there's something that you realize that the Ninevites still weren't sure. Because at the very end, he says, we have to turn around. We have to ask for forgiveness. We have to turn from evil. And who knows, maybe Hopefully, prayerfully, God might save us. That's where Nineveh was. But what a joy that we know Jesus. Because scripture reminds us, and Jesus' life teaches us, that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But I thought about this week, how Nineveh wasn't even sure that what they did was enough and yet they still did it in faith. They weren't sure if turning around was enough. They weren't sure if asking for forgiveness was enough. They weren't sure if grieving their sin was enough. They weren't sure if pledging to stop violence and living for themselves was enough. They were not sure. They only did it in hope. How much more that we who know should be calling out the forgiveness of God. How much more should we not be asking for forgiveness, but turning from the things that are pulling us away from God, from accepting the assignment, actually living for God? And then there's something else that happens in here. I think this is actually brilliant by the writer of Jonah. The word that's used, so we have five words in the Hebrew that translate to 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. What's interesting is that Jonah, I think, was preaching fire and brimstone. I don't think Jonah wanted people to be saved. You don't believe me, just read on to chapter 4, you know? I don't think Jonah was preaching, I want you to be saved and turn to God. Jonah was literally preaching, God's coming and judgment's coming. Good luck. But the word he uses for overturned, hofak, it means to overthrow. But not just in the sense of flipping tables. That almost seems too nice, right? Hofak really means overturned as in destroyed, right? Destroyed as in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Who are destroyed in the Old Testament. Why? Because they didn't love the poor. They didn't take care of the orphans, right? They weren't living in a way that was honoring to God, right? Like that's why Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. Hofak, right? But something also happens in the Hebrew. I think this is the play on words that the writer does here because there's a secondary meaning of Hofak, right? And that secondary meaning is actually what? Transformed turned over, changed into the opposite. I think it's brilliant that Jonah went to the people thinking he's preaching their doom and gloom, right? So out of his words is coming, repent or, or 40 more days and you will be destroyed. But that same word meant something else on the people's hearts. Because to God, it wasn't about destruction. It was 40 more days. And if you turn to me, you will be transformed. Jonah preached destruction, Hophak. God preached transformation. God preached change into the total opposite. 
And it's funny because as they turn their lives around, as they put on the, the grieving clothes, as they say, God, we hope you will be compassionate and hold from us. God sees their shoe and he shows love and mercy. God sees their redemption, them turning their lives around, them turning to him, them putting on the clothes, them grieving their sin. God sees it all and shows love and mercy. This morning I woke up my daughters to, a, there's a song by Porter's House, right? And it's, it's all about blessed are the merciful. And the whole song is blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. But then there's a, the second half of the song and it says this. It says, Lord, have mercy on us, right? But Lord, show your mercy through us. I think that's the core of Jonah 3. And I hope that's the core of all of our lives. That we're asking God not just to show mercy on us, but that God's mercy can be shown through us. That as we think about our own transformation, and I'm not just talking about when you decide to follow Jesus, I'm talking about the individual transformation, I'm talking about the baby steps you're taking, I'm talking about every day being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, I'm talking about the growth that you've experienced in your life, all of it, as you've been transformed. May your prayer be, God, show mercy on me, yes, but God, show mercy through me. So Jonah 3 isn't about Jonah fleeing. It's not about Jonah praying, it's about Jonah obeying. And obedience then isn't just the very best way to show that you believe, but we learn that obedience always pleases God. So from Jonah 3, we learn that to follow God, we must obey. And obedience means turning back to God. So I don't know where you are in your faith. I don't know where you are in your journey. I don't know where you are in your health and walk with God. But I know obedience says, God, I'm willing to turn around. Obedience says, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for falling short. I'm sorry for good left undone. I'm sorry for hurting the people around me. I'm sorry for hurting you. God, forgive me. And as you turn that car around, obedience says not just, you know, taking a blanket statement of like, oh, God forgives me, but actually grieving your sin. Because sin destroys relationships. Sin puts strains on relationships. And yes, God forgives, but sin still has consequences. And that's why it's important for us to not just ask for forgiveness, but to be willing to work on those strains and to rebuild and and to also get to a point where we're grieving what we've done. And I love, love, love that this God we serve, if we obey and turn back to God, if we obey and grieve our sin, I love that God has been so merciful to us And now God wants to be merciful through us. And it's this beautiful thing we have. And we learn from Jonah, but we also learn from all of Scripture. We learn from Jesus himself that God desires to not only show you mercy, but to show your world mercy through you. That God has saved you, not just so you can get to heaven too, but so that the world around you can feel his love, know his love. And I think, like I said earlier, it might be easy for some of us to think about our gifts, our skills, and abilities that we can give to God. But our God seems to believe that your afflictions, that your addictions, that your failures, that you not being good enough or you thinking you're not good enough and falling short, God seems to think if you give all that to me, I can redeem that too. Because the world might be inspired by your gifts, but they also might be touched by your brokenness. The world might be inspired by you shining, but they also might be touched by you saying, this is hard. And only by the grace of God am I here. Only by the goodness of God am I standing before you. The world is still lost. Nineveh is still out there. But if God has transformed you, the question becomes not just knowing God's love and mercy is available to all, but saying, God, here I am. I surrender myself to you. I give you, yes, my gift, my skills, my abilities, my heart, my dreams, my hopes, but I also give you my failures, my falling short, my leaving good left undone. I always say that, and it always sounds weird, but it makes sense in my head. My leaving good left undone. I give it all to you, Lord, in obedience and faithfulness that you will transform not just me, but the world around me through me. This morning we'll be taking communion together.
I can invite up Pastor Woody. He'll be joining me. Um, as you came in, we had the elements at the door. Um, if you didn't pick them up as you come in, I'd like to invite you to go to the back and get it now. Uh, we'll be doing communion together. In the next moments, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. We don't require that you're a member of this church to participate in communion, but we do require that you're a member of the body of Christ. Um, like I said, if you haven't gotten it, please go to the back and get the communion elements now. The table of the Lord is for all who believe, not all who are members of this church, and it's for all who've received Jesus Christ as our Lord. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking on our sin so that we might take on your righteousness. Lord, thank you for taking on our death so that we might take on your life. And thank you, Lord, for taking on our brokenness so that we might be whole. We are reminded again of the cost, the terrible cost, the incredible cost of what it means for us to be here today. But we celebrate you, Lord, and we are grateful. And we thank you for this opportunity to remember. In your name we ask it. Amen. My brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised by our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. In like manner, Lord, we come before you and come before this table, grateful for your free sacrifice, your loving sacrifice, that in the shedding of your blood, Lord, we are now united with you. We thank you that through your suffering we are made whole. We thank you that through your bleeding we are set free. We thank you that through that blood we have now been united, not just as every nation, every tribe, every tongue, but into your body, into your family. So, Lord, we take this cup now in remembrance of you, grateful for the blood that covers our skin, grateful for the love that you pour, and grateful for the blood that sets us free, grateful for the blood that covers us, grateful for the blood that welcomes us back home. In your holy and precious name, amen. Now we'll have another responsive reading. My sisters and brothers, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Um, at this time, I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to close with um, a song that might be familiar to most of you called Withholding Nothing. Um, if you want, there's also trays on the side. You can put your cups in there. You can just hold them until you leave. But as we sing this song together, as the worship team comes up, I'd like to invite any of the pastors in the room to come up front. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. If you want to respond to something in the message, love to pray for you for that as well. But as we sing this song about withholding nothing, I want to invite us and challenge us to realize that when we say we're withholding nothing, when we say we surrender to God, we're not just surrendering the good parts of ourselves. We're not just surrendering the, 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 the pleasurable parts of ourselves or the good deeds that we've done. We're saying, God, I want to withhold nothing. 
Because not only does God know our history, but God has redeemed us from that history and God has set us free. But God is also able to use that history, even our failures and falling short, to transform the world around us. So I'd like to invite you up and as you sing, may we freely, lovingly withhold nothing from this God who's merciful and who desires to be merciful through us. Let's stand and sing together. Last week, our sister Toe beautifully shared from Luke chapter 15. And in that, that chapter, you have these three parables, these three stories Jesus tells. And, and it's actually easy to see, at least for me, it's well, for all of us, it's easy to see the different depictions of how God and who God is, right? In the last story, there's three stories. In the last story, the parable of the lost sons, you see this merciful father 
who's so loving that he's willing to, to freely let his children choose to disobey him, choose to disrespect him, choose to reject him. And they reject him in the one not only taking the money and squandering it, right, but the one who was able to somehow stay physically close but miss his entire heart. And you see this father who's willing to run to welcome the son back into the community, who's willing to leave the party to tell the other son that I'm still here, everything I have is yours. So we see God, the merciful father. And in the first parable, Jesus tells about the, the sheep, how when the 99 are safe, he's willing to go out and get the last one. And Jesus himself said, well, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. They hear my voice. So it's easy to see that. But I was thinking this week about that middle story. If we have Jesus in the first and we have the Father in the third, so it's got to be the Holy Spirit. But that, that second story is a little bit difficult because you have a lady who loses a coin. But it's not just a quarter, right? It's a coin that's worth a paycheck. I don't know what you get paid, but if you lose a paycheck, that's a pretty significant loss, right? And I thought about how she's willing to do anything to find that paycheck, how she's willing to overturn the whole house. And when I saw that word overturn, the spirit says, aha! And I started thinking about Jonah, how when he preached overturn, he meant destruction. But when God preached overturn, he meant transformation. We have a world that's working so hard for paychecks. We have a world that's working so hard for different values and beliefs. But when the spirit comes, the spirit doesn't just want to transform like, the person or the individual. The spirit is not here to destroy, but to call them back to Jesus. And I pray that as we give our lives to God, if we say, God, I'm withholding nothing, I'm giving all of myself to you, I'm going out to the world, I pray that for all of us, that the spirit is working to show people that their true value is not in their paycheck. The true value is being willing to submit to the Spirit and be transformed by the Spirit. And when she finds that coin, she rejoices, just like God wants to use you. Because when he finds his children, he will rejoice too. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for the blessing of your Holy Spirit. We thank you so much for the blessing of you, our merciful Father. We thank you so much for you, our Lord, the good Savior, the good shepherd of our souls. Lord, we pray now that you teach us how to obey. Obey and turn to you. Obey and grieve our sin. Obey and, and, and submit ourselves to you so that we can be used and transformed by you, but also so that we can tell these stories to our world. God, we pray that you help us to withhold nothing, that we're willing to give you, yes, the good stuff, the triumphs, but also our lows. God, help us to know that you can use our gifts, but you can also use our brokenness, that you can use our, 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 our wonderful deeds but you can also use our failures too. If we're willing to give it back to you and say, God, what have you taught me? What can you teach through me? Because your love is not just available to me, it's available through me. So God, as we go back to our everyday scenes, as we go back to, to classmates and coworkers, to neighborhood people and people even in our own houses and workmates, God, help us to hold on to your love and mercy but to know that you've given it to us and gifted it to us so that we can share it with the world around us. Transform us so that through the Spirit, we can transform the world that we see. Bless us so that through the Jesus our Christ, we can bless the world that we see. Love us just like you, the Father, the merciful one who runs towards us, also wants to hold our hand and run towards the world to bring those children home too. God, we thank you for your love and mercy. And we thank you that in all things, you're good, you're wonderful, you're true, you're merciful, you're compassionate, you're gracious. You are love. You are love, God. We are loved by you. We're so loved by you. Help us now to love the world as you love the world and to let your love shine through us. In your holy and precious name, amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.